we think we can do a better job of mapping the seagrass so that we can actually start to measure it. And of course, the seagrass area is directly related to the amount of carbon that's deposited in the root system underneath that seagrass. So the connection there is that the, the technology of the LiDAR potentially offers us a way to better map the seagrass so we can then better map the potential for carbon sequestration. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. So that voice you heard right at the start of the episode, that is Andrew Waddington. Andrew has a long and complicated title at a geospatial company called Hexagon. And today on the podcast, we're talking about bathymetric LIDAR. We're going to try and put it in context of a story about seagrass, carbon credits, and the need to take a risk if we want change to happen. So as you can tell by that introduction, we, we cover a lot of ground in this podcast. I'll be back at the end of the interview with a few resources that, uh, that I'd really like to share with you. Okay, let's go. Hi Andy, welcome to the podcast. You're the VP of Bathymetric Services. I, I realize your title is much longer than that, but if we leave it to that right for now at a company called Hexagon. I was at your Hexagon Live event a few weeks ago prior to the recording of this podcast episode and you were telling this wonderful story that had something to do with blue carbon sensor tagged sharks, seagrass and airborne bathymetric LiDAR. And so today on the podcast, I'm hoping that you can help us put all, all of these things together and tell a story around that. Before we get there, what is your actual title at, at Hexagon and, and how did you end up at Hexagon? Hi, Daniel. Yeah, I'm VP Bathymetric Services and I work in the geospatial content solutions team of Hexagon Geospatial Geosystems Division. I've been with Hexagon for just over a year. My background is in the marine industry and in hydrographic surveying. And an opportunity came up within Hexagon and uh, I was lucky enough to be offered, a, offered an opening, which I've taken and I've, I'm enjoying it at the moment. Was LIDAR, like bathymetric LIDAR, was that, has that always been a part of, uh, of surveying? Uh, what, what did you call it? Hydrological surveying? Hydrographic survey. Yeah, I mean, BathyLiDAR is an emerging technology, really. It's been emerging for about 20 years, and it's developed a lot uh, in the last 10 years. So I'm, I'm old enough to have started hydrographic survey in the days when um, GNSS was something we look forward to in the future. We used echo sounders mainly, um, and that's my, been my background. But I moved into airborne bathymetric LiDAR about 15 years ago when it was really in its first generation. I'd say we're probably now in the fourth generation and it's just being more accepted as a mainstream hydrographic tool now. Right. I really want to get into the details of that a little bit later on in, in the conversation. But I think I mentioned a few sort of sort of key words to this conversation early, earlier on, and, and one of them is blue carbon. Could we start there? What, what does blue carbon mean to you? Thanks for, for adding that caveat because I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in blue carbon, but from my understanding and, and what it means to me is it's a the way that the marine environment can store carbon and treat carbon and help humanity deal with carbon. So blue carbon is, a, is an all-embracing term for how we might manage some of the carbon um, cycle using the marine environment. It sounds like we could possibly refer to this as a, as a carbon sink just in the marine environment. Kind of. I think it's a bit more complicated than that in that it can give carbon back to the cycle. So it is part of the whole cycle. And we're finding as with carbon sequestration on land and, and carbon sinks, they, they only last for a certain length of time. And then the carbon gets re-released, like when you burn wood, for example. 
So it's not truly the part of it that we're talking about. It's not truly a carbon sink. It's more of a deposit and management of carbon. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. So again, going back to these these keywords that I mentioned before, a couple of them. Uh, could we could we start with this uh, sensor tagged sharks and, and seagrass? What do these two things have in common? It's exciting, isn't it, when you start mentioning um, modern technology like sensor tagging and combine it with the natural environment, especially with something as exciting as sharks. And that part of the sort of study that we've done and the work that we we're still doing uh, has been led by our partners in this project who are a company called Beneath the Waves, who are largely a a conservation-type charity who've got a lot of expertise in managing sharks. And they almost inadvertently discovered that when they were tagging sharks to find out how they behaved and what their health was like, they discovered that these sharks tended to live in areas of seagrass. And these particular sharks, the tiger shark in in the Bahamas area, they found that when they looked back at the imagery and the tracking of the sharks that from the sensors that were put on them, that they moved in areas of seagrass. And then they thought, well, that's really interesting because that gives us a way to find out more about the seagrass. And the connection, I guess, with that is, is the seagrass from the sharks to the seagrass to the potential for storing carbon long term um, underwater. Okay, so I, I realise that, um, that this is not your main area of, of expertise. But could you could you dive into that storing carbon long term underwater and seagrass side of the conversation for us, please? Yeah, from my understanding, the seagrass itself doesn't store much carbon, unlike trees and forests on the land where the, the carbon is stored in the wood and in the trees. In seagrass, the carbon is actually stored in the extensive root system in the seagrass. The seagrass itself is, is not very big, as you probably know, although it covers some very large areas, it's quite dense. The carbon is actually taken in through the, the seagrass itself and then stored in a very long root system beneath inside the sand. And it's stored at a few millimetres a year. Um, and, and as the seagrass stays there for, for potentially centuries, there's an extensive deposit of carbon in the seagrass roots. Okay, so you, you've done a great job sort of giving us some context to the story. And I guess now we can move on to the bit that is you know, more in your wheelhouse, this airborne bathymetric lidar. What, what, what does this have to do with seagrass and, and blue carbon? We're using bathymetric lidar to map the seagrass, the extent of the seagrass. The bathymetric lidar system is optimized for mapping the shape and size of the seafloor, the seabed. In purely hydrographic and bathymetric terms, we're, we're looking for the depth. And traditionally, bathymetric lidar has been used as a hydrographic tool to gain depth information for putting on nautical charts for safety of life at sea and for stopping ships running aground. More recently, we found that there's a lot more information in the data that we collect from the bathymetric LIDAR than just the seabed. And we've tended to take a lot of that information out and actually try and suppress it. But as we start to become increasingly aware of the importance of the sort of marine ecosystem, we can see that we've got more information on the marine ecosystem in the waveforms that form the data that we collect with the bathymetric LIDAR. So bringing those two things together, working with the information that Beneath the Waves gave us from the shark tagging, we think we can do a better job of mapping the seagrass so that we can actually start to measure it. And of course, the seagrass area is directly related to the amount of carbon that's deposited in the root system underneath that seagrass. So the connection there is that the the technology of the LIDAR potentially offers us a way to better map the seagrass 
so we can then better map the potential for carbon sequestration. Wow. It is really easy to interview you. You're doing a brilliant job of helping us understand this. Amazing. Thank you. Why use LiDAR for this? Like you talked about we can get more information out of it, but but why is LiDAR better than other forms of, of mapping, of, of marine mapping? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, Daniel. And and I'm going to just, again, I'm just going to follow up with a, with a thing. I, I don't necessarily think that it's better because that's a sort of value judgment. And there are different things that, that form that. What LiDAR does is it collects high definition information relatively quickly. And the relative is, is compared to acoustic systems like multi-beam echo sounders. I would say that from, a, from an accuracy perspective, multi-beam echo sounders have the edge over ba- airborne bathymetric LiDAR. They go much slower, they collect much denser data. Some of the processing algorithms for things like backscatter from a, a multi-beam echo sounder are very well defined. And there's a probability that you could actually detect the seagrass to a higher quality than you can with bathymetric LiDAR. The problem is the seagrass that we are trying to map exists in very shallow water. And as we know that, you know, the multi-beam spread of the multi-beam, the swath of the area that it can cover gets smaller as the water gets shallower. And a multi-beam vessel-based systems take a very long time to collect data. And one of the things that we, we're starting to realize is that we, we don't have time. We need to be doing something about climate change, carbon buildup now. And what we're trying to do is get more of a snapshot several times over, the, over a period of time so that we can do a comparison of the health of the seagrass. And that's what bathymetric LIDAR offers us because we're flying in an airplane at 120, 130 knots over an area, we can clearly collect more data than a boat that's traveling at six, maybe 10 knots and has a much narrower swath. The other end of the equation is, well, what about space-based systems, the satellite observation? And yeah, absolutely. The, the satellites, you know, they collect wide, wide area very, very quickly. And the actual products are becoming much cheaper, but they don't have the definition and they don't have the level of detail that the bathymetric LIDAR can collect. So it, a lot depends on on what you want. Is it quick? The answer is yes, it needs to be quick. Does it need to be accurate? The answer is yes, it needs to be accurate enough. And then the question then comes in of price. And the first two bathymetric LIDAR can deliver, but it's the optimum solution to collect data to high accuracy, high definition, and much faster. But there is a myth that it would be cheaper, and, and it isn't. I mean, space-based systems are much cheaper, but you don't get what you need to really map the seagrass and the detail that we're talking about. So that's why we think bathymetric LIDAR from an operational point of view is a good solution. There are some other bits as well about additional information that we can extract from the LIDAR. That really gets down into the technical nitty gritty to do with wavelengths and light and so on and how it interacts with plant life itself. We believe, and we've had some successful tests, but we haven't productionized it yet, that we can actually help identify species of seagrass with the LIDAR, which isn't currently possible using acoustic systems. Wow, that would be amazing. If you can prove that, that would be incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we are working on that right now. So with our extensive resources in terms of software development and in terms of technical expertise, and indeed the hardware in the, in the sensors, we're trying to demonstrate that that can be done. What we lack at the moment is some ground truthing, actually. We need to bring in AI and we need to bring in the power of computer processing. And we're working with Beneath the Waves to get that kind of ground truthing. Again, looping back to tagged sharks with cameras fitted 
and indeed to small boats that can collect a transect of video imagery, for example, that we can then relate back to what we've obtained from the bathymetric LIDAR waveform. Uh, after this podcast episode, I'll share a link with you to a project called the, the Ocean of Things. It's, and this is exactly what they're talking about, basically using sea life as uh, sensor platforms. I thought it was fascinating. I'll share that with you later on and also put it in the show notes of this episode. I want to go back to LIDAR because I think you did a great job describing or pointing out that it's not necessarily the, the absolute best in every situation, but it's the, the best in this particular situation. I think one really important piece of context that we need to know here is the depth of the water. My understanding is that bathymetric LIDAR is is quite limited in terms of its penetration depth. Yeah, it's definitely limited, Daniel. It's the limiting factor, really, with bathymetric LIDAR. If bathymetric LIDAR, light and water behave the same way as sound, we could get very deep, but it doesn't. The energy in the laser pulse runs out. It's scattered by suspended sediment in the water column. It's scattered by fish. It's scattered by particles in, in, in the water. So the energy doesn't get back to the aircraft and the sensor receivers. So it is limited by depth. And there is no absolute depth that you'll see from different system manufacturers that they say we can get to 50 meters, we can get to 55 meters, we can get to 45 meters. And that's great in theory, but one sounding doesn't make a a, a survey, as, as we say. And really, the limits of the LIDAR system are based on the environmental conditions that you encounter in the water. They can be temporal and spatial. Uh, and in the course of the you know one day, the conditions can change in the water from getting very little back in terms of valid returns from the bathy lidar to getting a beautiful clear bottom at 35 meters. The real benefit is that you can vary the areas that you're working in with lidar because you're in an aeroplane and it doesn't take very long to move 400 miles to another area, whereas with a boat, it would take you much longer to, to move to a different area. But yeah, the, the effective depth of most LIDAR systems, I would say, is around 35, 40 metres. They are starting to divide into shallow and deeper systems. And that term deep is only relative. And it's that sort of 30 to 40, maybe 45 metres. And on the shallow sensors on the land, all the way from the land on the topo, all the way down to about 30, 35 metres. But it's entirely dependent on the environmental conditions in the water. One day you could get 35 metres, the next day you may get 35 centimetres if you're lucky. And it almost doesn't matter what system you use, the physics of light and its interaction with the water column mean that you aren't, you just aren't going to get there. We just haven't worked that bit out yet. Maybe we will one day, but at the moment I think we're limited by the physics of light. I just want to go back to some of these environmental conditions that you're talking about that, that make the difference in terms of, I guess, the quality of the data we can collect and the depth that we can penetrate to. I'm assuming sediment is something, a general sort of clarity of the water. What about temperature and or salinity of the water? Does that make a difference in terms of the penetration depths that we can expect? It does. The temperature and the salinity and and the pressure, in fact, have an effect on the the wavelength and the, the passage of the light through the water. Those things, though, we can allow for. We can either measure them directly or we can deduce them or calculate them from the waveform performance as it's actually passing through the water. So those particular things we can allow for and deal with, and, and we do do that. The really difficult part is the is the two parts. One is sediment suspended in the water, which can be raised by onshore winds lifting sand or wave action lifting sand or a vessel putting sand or something like it in the water. And that's quite temporary. The other thing 
that from the turbidity side and the sediment side is runoff from the land because we tend to talk very shallow water here, which tends to be in coastal areas. And therefore, you get the outflow from ports and harbours and rivers, which tends to be less clear water, especially if it's been raining on the land. We will see the effects of that in the coastal environment, and that will have a direct impact on the ability of the LIDAR to work. The other thing that's key is the type and nature of the seabed itself and the reflectance of the seabed. So in a nice sandy seabed, you get high reflectance, nice white or yellow surface. In areas of rock or indeed in seed, some seagrass, they're greener and darker. And of course, we're using a green wavelength, which just gets totally absorbed by the seabed rather than being returned to the sensors. So that's the other thing that can limit the effectiveness of bathymetric LIDAR and the depths that it can achieve. So we're talking about quite shallow water as well. Waves in shallow water, is that a problem as well? Like I imagine like if it was a breaking wave, you can't see through that breaking bit of the wave. Can a LIDAR see through that or does that disrupt things? Yeah, sorry, Danny. No, they definitely can't see through that. The white water effectively reflects the LIDAR at that point so it doesn't get through it. There's a couple of things we can do about that. One is we have a circular scan pattern in the sensor that we use at Hexagon. And that means that as the aircraft flies over the wave, which of course is constantly in motion, it actually illuminates the same area twice, once on the forward part of the scan and once on the backward part of the scan. So that increases the probability of passing over that particular point when there isn't white water on it. The other thing is we allow environmental study and analysis of when we're going to actually do the flying. And we tend not to fly when there's an onshore wind and we tend not to fly when there's a sea state above three or four in the coastal area causing the waves to break. And that's all down to planning and timing. So I guess with the, we have operational methods of solving the technical limitation caused by things like white water and breaking waves. The other nice thing, of course, it's a challenge in many ways because the marine environment is constantly dynamic, but it's also an advantage in that because it's dynamic and the tide goes in and out, that white water will tend to move up and down the beach. So if necessary, we'll, we'll fly an area more than once so that we get there when the white water has moved either more to seaward or further up the beach. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the flying height when you're collecting this data. So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that acoustics in shallow water really limit the, the swath width. Obviously, if the ship is in deep water, it has a much bigger swath width when the acoustic wave hits the bottom of the sea floor. But we're talking about shallow water here. Is there a relationship between flying height and the depth of penetration as well? I know there's a relationship between flying height and swath width, but is there a relationship between flying height and penetration? Yeah, there is. And generally, the, the higher we fly, the less penetration we'll get because there's less energy actually getting into the water by the time it's passed through more of the, the air path. So we do see a drop off in performance in depth penetration as we fly higher. There are quite a few developments ongoing at the moment by the various sensor manufacturers to adjust for this working out better ways of narrowing the field of view, of changing the amount of energy that can be got in a laser pulse, of increasing the sensitivity of the receivers that mean that that is less apparent than perhaps it was 10 years ago in previous generations of sensors. So effectively, you will see sensors being flown higher and still achieving the same depth that they achieved in previous generations. Of course, if you flew at the same altitude, we would estimate that we would get better depth performance as well. So again, operationally, we have to adjust how we collect the data in the sense of what altitude we'll fly at to meet the conditions and the client's requirements and the things like data density 
and the actual depth that they're going for have to be factored into how we decide to fly. So there is there is no one size fits all with bathymetry LiDAR as there isn't with multi-beam. So we're adjusting the operational constraints on the system to get the maximum performance to meet the client's requirements. Yeah, it really doesn't sound like it's it's easy. I, I got to say, there's a lot of things, a lot of fa- factors to consider. Could you give us an what's the optimal flying height for you? If you if you could choose, what would it be? That's another great question. You you know a lot about lidar, Daniel, or at least you understand what we're what we're talking about, which is great to be talking to somebody with that kind of that kind of knowledge. It's a balance between getting the depth penetration that you want to get. So you want to fly lower for the reasons we just discussed. Getting the job done efficiently to meet budgets and so on, which means you want to fly higher. And then there's the environmental limits like cloud base. One of the things is LiDAR will not go through cloud. So we have to fly below the cloud base. And in lots of the places that we operate, the cloud base tends to be at about 1,200, 1,500 feet. On occasions, maybe 2,000 meters more regularly. So you can't go much higher than five or 600 meters without encountering cloud. And if you get cloud, we can't use bathylidar, cloud below the sensor. Cloud above the sensor is okay, although it does have an effect on the coincident imagery but it's not really critical to the quality of the data. So we're looking to fly at the moment somewhere between 450 and maybe 550 metres. Again, depending on the actual environmental conditions in the water and depending on the depth that we're looking for, because not everybody's going for maximum depth and then whatever it is that the client wants to use the data for. You mentioned that you're also collecting imagery. What, what do you use the imagery for? So the imagery can be used for two things. We, it was originally designed into our systems to help us with quality control an analysis of the LIDAR performance, because you can see in optically clear water, even from an aircraft at 450 metres. And we can use that particularly in extremely shallow water as we move from the, the, the sort of wet bit to the dry bit on the beach to help identify rocks and stones, because it's very difficult. A, a rock that, that is a wash um, at the point that can be very difficult to distinguish from the actual white water itself. So that was the original concept of bringing the imagery in to help us visually interpret what's going on to increase our confidence in the algorithms and their classification of particular types of data. What we've subsequently found, though, is that actually at 450 metres, using good quality cameras, we collect very good imagery that can then be orthomosaic to produce uh, an orthomosaic of the whole survey area. And over the sea, that's not a lot of good, although it can help you identify things like navigation marks or vessels in the data. But on the beach, it's extremely useful because we tend to look inland when we fly normal missions. We tend to be interested in where people are, where people live, where people exercise and play and so on. And actually, we don't then focus very much on that very sensitive and critical intertidal range and beach area where most of the sort of coastal processes are going on in terms of vegetation, sea life and indeed erosion and so on is that happening in that zone that we tend not to look at. So we found some real advantages of taking the coincident imagery. Wow. So it sounds like you're, you're flying much higher than I thought you would actually and collecting a lot of imagery when you do it. If I was planning this, you know, a survey campaign, I had my geographic area mapped out. I, I want to go and survey this today. Are you mapping it out in terms of like constant water depth? So I, w- I only want to map this area that has this constant water depth that will perhaps a known seafloor, and then move on and map another water depth, adjusting the sensors perhaps, mapping another water depth, and, and then coming back for the day and, and moving through the survey area like that? Or do you just fly 
up and down it, over it, make sure there's enough overlap and deal with all the sort of pre-processing later on? It's the latter that we do uh, because it makes it more efficient to collect. But the, your point about how we deal with the data later is a really important one and one that the importance of which is, is emerging more and more. We don't apply the same processing routines to all the data just because that's what we've collected. We are finding that some people are interested in the data from you know, 50, 100 meter altitude inland all the way to five meters, and they're interested from an environmental perspective. So we may process that a different way to how we would process, for example, information from five meters to 20 meters, which is going to be used for nautical charting and safety of life at sea, where object detection becomes extremely critical. So we are finding that there are different ways to approach the processing depending on the final application of the data. So we'll collect once and we'll collect with the best settings that we can. But then when it comes to the processing and the magic part of the whole process, that can be optimized for different outputs from the same data collect. Thank you very much for using the word magic there. I, I really appreciate that. Because <laughs> that's the way it feels to me a lot of the time when I hear people talk about it. We put it in a box, some magic happens and we get this result. So that sort of tells me that you need to know quite a little bit about, or quite a lot about the seafloor before you do your processing. Maybe not before you do the collection, but definitely before you do the processing. So I'm assuming like the depth of the water, perhaps what the seafloor sea is made out of, and perhaps a few characteristics about the water column itself, salinity, turbidity, all of that kind of thing. Do you go out and do a campaign before you, you fly your, your aerial campaign and, and do some sort of uh, ground truthing or, or, or depth measurement? In practical terms, we do that very rarely. A lot of the stuff that you've talked about, which is absolutely true, we can actually derive from the observations themselves. Wow. So by going and flying, we can back compute that information. And we do do a lot of that. And our algorithms are set up to enable us to do that. But ultimately, the, the best solution is some ground truthing and some ground truthing of light conditions in the water at the time of flying, of the turbidity and of seabed reflectance are critical in improving that. But so far as results are concerned, we're probably talking a few centimetres in difference in terms of penetration and accuracy, because what we can actually do is tune the algorithms during processing to optimise the outputs based on all those collectibles that you talk about, Daniel. And the waveform that we collect, we collect full waveform data. The waveform has so much more information than we have traditionally extracted because we focus purely on the seabed. And we're finding that it's got even more information as we start to look at it in terms that you just described so far as important inputs to how the light performs in the water. Okay, so we, we now understand that this is non-trivial. Like creating a survey like this is not, <laughs> not necessarily really, really easy. It sounds like you can do it, but it doesn't sound easy. Earlier in the conversation, when, if we go back to our blue carbon and our, our seagrass there, you were talking about LiDAR is the best solution for, for this particular circumstance, for this p particular scenario, because it's, it's quick and you possibly need to do this recapture in area multiple times a year. How often would you want to recapture an area of seagrass and why would you want to recapture it apart from the monitoring side of it? Are you constantly testing, like back testing, seeing oh, did this survey match with the last survey, that kind of thing? Or why do you need to recapture it? The predominant reason for recapture is linked to the value of the carbon that's been sequestered, which is sort of links to the carbon credit type market and to show that the carbon sequestration isn't being destroyed 
to show that the seagrass is still healthy, so it's continuing to deposit carbon. And in that case, we would probably talk about a revisit of around about once every five years. And that particular application is talking about is, is conservation, really. It's preserving the seagrass in its current healthy form because we're losing globally. We're losing seagrass in, in acres and hectares or whatever measurement you want to take, but in a, at an alarming rate. And we have done over the last 50 years. And we need to stop that if we're going to be able to take advantage of the ability of seagrass to sequester the carbon. And it can sequester it long term. So it's not just a question of the seagrass being there now. It has to be there in the future, because if you tear up the seagrass and if you tear up the seabed underneath it, then that carbon will be released. And that's the sort of difference between the potential of sea carbon sequestration at sea and carbon sequestration on land. When that forest dies on land, the carbon is released. When it burns, the carbon is released. There's a possibility here, an option, an opportunity here to leave the carbon deposited for hundreds of years in the sea. But if we drag an anchor cable there on a very small scale, if we do dredging there, if we do, we build there, if we do offshore mineral resource exploration there, then we release the carbon. But if we don't interfere with it, there's almost no natural way for that carbon to be released. So it, it naturally stays there for a very, very long time. And we're talking in terms of centuries, even storm events, because of the nature of seagrass that binds it all together. And we know that seagrass absorbs storm events at sea. Even storm events don't disturb that carbon to the extent that storm events would disturb green carbon sequestration in forests and so on. So that's why we'd sort of look at doing the resurvey to prove that it's there. The other one that you mentioned about whether we can improve on what we did before or what the changes is, is a really good point. Because one of the things we are increasingly learning with the power of computer is that it's detecting change is much easier thing to do than to get the baseline in the first place. So if we can get a baseline and then resurvey, all we need to do is then detect and observe the change from that baseline to the next survey. And that's a much faster and easier process than repeatedly collecting again every 10 years, every 50 years, almost collecting for the first time. So we want to make the observation of what's going on in the nearshore environment a much more routine and regular process so that we can better understand what's going on and in time to take necessary action. Because as we know, the rate of change in the marine environment is huge, it's accelerating, and we don't have long before we need to do something about it. Some people say we've already missed the opportunity. We think that by applying technology with the science and nature's own natural way of doing things, actually, we can make a difference much more quickly. But we need to get on with it. We haven't got time to, to keep waiting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And like, I'm all for science and I'm all for measuring more stuff and collecting data. And I love seeing that these different technologies that are being developed, it feels like on a daily basis, all this stuff amazes me. But there is a part of my brain that thinks, come on, we, we already kind of know what to do. Why don't we just do that? Like we, you know, let, let's, let's make a decision and move on. But um, I, I do completely understand what you're saying. And it sounds like part of the thing that's enabling this business case of the carbon credits, which is essentially, as I understand it, making sure that the seagrass is protected and you know, creating a business case around protecting the seagrass is that we can use this bathymetric lidar to measure it accurately and we can gauge how much it is, how much is there, and then we can 
and sort of add this into the carbon credit system. And this creates the business case, but it's built around this, this accurate measurement. Am I on the right track? Absolutely, 100%, Daniel. And I think that is really well observed. We know it works. We can see it works. We know the seagrass is there, but we're not entirely sure how much. One of the things we need to do is work out a mechanism that places some kind of monetary value on the carbon sequestration. And what I think we want to try and do, and what is in the back of my mind as a way that which we can make this more viable, is that we have to increase the value of leaving the natural resource as it is. And at the moment, it doesn't really have a value in monetary terms. We, we kind of know, as you say, we should just get on with this. We kind of know that, that it works and that it's valuable, but we can't put a figure on it. And the way we do, do things at the moment in society is we, we have to be able to quantify it and give it a, a value almost in cash terms. And before we can do that, we have to measure it. Just knowing that there might be 58,000 square kilometres of seagrass in the Bahamas is great. But actually, when it comes to monetizing it, is it 55,000 or is it 60,000? And what if someone wants to build mineral extraction on a thousand of it? You can't sort of currently give a value to it that says, actually, a thousand square kilometers of seagrass is worth this amount of money in terms of carbon sequestration. Whereas you can say an oil exploration in this area and the oil that comes from it is worth this much. So it's not a balanced argument when it comes to how we use that resource. We kind of know we need to preserve it, but by the nature of the way we do business currently, we need to put some kind of monetary value on it so that we can make a level assessment compared to other uses of that sea space. That is a brilliant way of putting it. I'm going to have to um, listen to this again <laughs> and use that as my sort of standard re reply to people when I talk about why do we need to measure more stuff? Because I really appreciate that. That was great. Thanks. So uh, I guess the next question is, yeah, are we ready to roll this out to other places in the world? We, we talked about all those sort of environmental limiting factors. When you think about doing this in other geographic areas, is it possible or is this just a, a very unique case that we're talking about now that's not that we can't replicate anywhere else? We think we can replicate it. We do think that the Bahamas is unique and the time is unique and it's coming together of an awareness and a willingness in the Bahamas itself to embrace this opportunity. And the science is there that was being carried out in the Bahamas anyway with the shark tracking for because that's where tiger sharks live. And we've been able to bring our science to it now, our technology to it now. But we believe it is exportable. And one of the great things from a back in LIDAR perspective about the seagrass for carbon sequestration is the seagrass that does deal with the carbon in the way that we're, we're looking at here grows and lives in clear, shallow water. So it grows and lives in areas where bathymetric LIDAR is the optimal system for mapping. That's not a coincidence because, of course, the, the seagrass itself needs the light conditions and needs the sea conditions to grow in a particular way and sequester the carbon. So we do believe that the time is right to do it. But one of the things that's needed is the political will to take a chance on this and that's why I say the timing is quite unique in the Palmas in that they've been very forward thinking in embracing this opportunity. And it can be quite complex in dealing with marine spatial management anyway. And this is adding another complexity. You're suddenly going to say, actually, the value is best left as it is. And that's where the real value comes in. In some places that might not fit with the current economic model or the current cultural model. So there are definitely challenges. But from a technical and science perspective, 
it can be exported and we're ready to look at doing that. We're not quite productionized yet, Daniel. We've still got some work internally to do. This was a pilot project and we're now ready to go on to the next stage. So it's not fully productionized yet. But when the opportunity comes up to do it, we are ready to productionize it and take it more globally and address this global problem on a global scale. Just out of curiosity, what would it take to productionize it, to, to have a product that you can just, like a standard product that you can just sort of roll out? What, what, what are you missing? The part that we're missing, I guess, is ground truthing, to be honest. I mean, the investment is a very important part, investment in the R&D, investment in the technology, and that's going on. And we're doing that within Hexagon with our partners. But the part that, that's probably missing is, is ground truthing. And we know that, as I mentioned earlier on, there is no one size fits all. We will have to ground truth every area that we, we work in because there are subtle differences, which is going to cause differences in the results. So we need the ground truthing so that we can train the AI to do the automated analysis. We do have a solution that isn't AI based. We can do it manually, but that takes forever, costs a lot of money, takes too long. We want to productionize this in the sense of having the algorithms that we can rely on and allowing us to draw on the power of computing to come up with effective extraction of the information from the data that we've collected. So it's AI. We, we need partners. We need political awareness and willingness to take a bit of a risk. And we need some ground truthing from traditional means to help us train our algorithms. So you've mentioned that political willingness and risk a couple of times now. What is the risk? Is the risk finding out that, oh, perhaps we shouldn't be using this geographic area for that activity? And maybe we have to make some cultural changes? Is that the risk? Or is it a financial risk? Do, do they have to front up with, with a, you know, a big bag of money to sort of make this happen, to do a test run? Or when you say risk, what, what, what do you mean? It's a bit of both. Primarily, it's that first one that you described. It, it may mean that we have to take a different view on how we're using the land space than the, the submerged land in the coastal environment underwater, how we're using it, how we're managing it. That's, from my perspective, is the primary risk for anyone looking at this. But there is also a need to bring some some capital to it as well. Yeah, it's not cheap to do this kind of work. And there has to be a willingness to to take the, the, the risk on investment. So just uh, one final question here. Could you give me an idea of what the, like, how much money could a, a government like the Bahamas make on, on these sort of carbon credits? I'm trying to understand, like, what, what is the return on investment for them? Like, how much is this geographic area worth per square kilometre? Just, just so I get an understanding of it. We don't really know that yet. It depends on the, the state of the voluntary carbon credit market. The carbon credits on the voluntary market have been going up in price, which potentially increases the value. In terms of, in, in general terms, we, we're certainly talking big figures, potentially, but it all comes down to how we as a society want to embrace the opportunity to deal with carbon and what value we place on it. So I'm, I'm dodging your question and not putting a figure on it, Daniel. That's partly because I, I don't know the answer to that. The feeling from a business model perspective is it's worth making the level of investment and the potential return from a business perspective is there. But the bigger return has got to be in conservation and dealing with the current climate crisis that we're in the middle of. No, I appreciate that it's not easy to sort of plant the flag and say it's worth this, especially when we're talking about a market that can move up and down. So I appreciate that. But it's, it is interesting to hear your thoughts around it. What are you most excited about when you think about bathymetric LIDAR you know, going forward? I think it's a really valuable tool in the sort of tool bag of hydrographic instruments. 
I have never felt that bathymetric LiDAR is the, is the silver bullet that's going to fix everyone's problem. The silver bullet is combining the right hydrographic sensors to the right area in terms of geography and environment and for the right application in terms of what sort of output you're looking for. And for me, the optimum, the, the best thing, the most exciting thing would be to see bathymetric LiDAR accepted in its place as something that's faster and does a good job to supplement perhaps the areas that can't be surveyed efficiently using multi-beam and those areas that need a better accuracy and better granularity of data than perhaps space-based systems. So that for me would be the, the thing that I would see most exciting would be to see an acceptance in the hydrographic community and in the charting authorities and so on that we don't, one size doesn't fit all, that we need to use the right tool for the right environment and the right geographic area. And one of those right tools is bathymetric LIDAR. Well, I, I think more sort of case studies like this, more successful case studies like that should, should help with this, surely. At least that's my hope. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much for your patience, slowly but surely walking us, us through the subject, being open and honest about this. I think that the temptation could be to say that you know, bathymetric lighter is the silver bullet. It's the answer to everything. Please go out and, and buy my stuff. But you didn't do that. <laughs> and I appreciate that. If there's somebody out there listening to this and they want to sort of learn more about this particular case study or the work that you're doing, where, where should they go to do that? So the best place to see this particular study is on Hexagon's R Evolution feed online. So that's R Evolution. If you pop that into Google, it will come up with a link to our evolution website, which shows where a section of Hexagon is looking to apply our technology to come up with environmental solutions. We've applied it on land and also in this particular case in the ocean part. So that would be the best place to, to see that, Daniel. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Daniel. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode about Bathymetric LiDAR with Andrew Waddington, VP of Bathymetric Services at Hexagon. And as promised in the introduction, I want to take a few minutes here to point you towards some more resources that you might find interesting. So in the show notes of this episode, you, you'll find a bunch of links. So one of the links will be to the, the case study that Andrew was talking about, this case study in the Bahamas with, with the seagrass. And you can find that at r-evolution.com slash r hyphen initiatives slash oceans. But again, there'll be links to all this in the show notes. I came across a really interesting project a wee while ago. It was called the Ocean of Things. So this was carried out by DARPA, I believe. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. We've also published several episodes now around mapping the marine environment. And there'll be links to those episodes as well. So a lot going on in the show notes today. It's, it's well worth checking out if you've got the time and, of course, are interested. While we're on the subject of, of LiDAR, it's also worth checking out a couple of episodes about some, some really useful LiDAR tools. So one of them is PDAL. So P-D-A-L, the Point Data Abstraction Library. And another one is Whitebox Tools. So Whitebox Tools isn't specifically for LiDAR, but it has a bunch of, of really interesting niche tools that, that you might find interesting as well and, and useful. So check out those two things. Again, links to those episodes in the show notes, or you can just search for them on Google and I'm, I'm sure you'll find them there as well. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you very much for showing up again this week. I really appreciate it. I'll be back again next week and I, I really hope that you'll take the time to join me then. 
As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. You can visit the website, mapscaping.com. There's some contact information there. Or you can follow us on social media. On Twitter, it's at Mapscaping. And there'll be a link to my LinkedIn profile in the show notes of this episode. Feel free to reach out for whatever reason. I I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's it for me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.